Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session. I'm joined via Zoom by friend of the show, Mani Moyudin. Mani is almost a faculty member at the University of Utah. He is currently a hematology oncology fellow at Kansas, and he is the author of a new paper out, which uh, should be out at least by the time we do this study. Mani, it's a pleasure to pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me here again. It's my pleasure. And I'm trying to, ah, good, it's working. So, Mani, what are we talking about today? What is the new paper? What's the title of the new paper and where is it coming out? All right, so the title of this paper is Reporting of Post-Protocol Therapies and Attrition in Multiple Myeloma Randomized Clinical Trials, a Systematic Review. And this is uh, being published uh, at JAMA Network Open. Ah, okay. JAMA No. And we got the new paper out and it is about post-protocol therapy. Money, what, what is a protocol therapy and what's a post-protocol therapy? I hardly know what that means. Right. And because that's hardly ever, it, it isn't discussed as much as it should be, yeah. and it isn't reported as much as it should be. So it's a valid question. So the protocol therapy is the therapy you get as part of the randomized trial, right? So you're right. comparing intervention A versus B, for example, for newly diagnosed myeloma, yeah. right? So you design a trial, one arm gets A, one arm gets B. That's the protocol therapy. But with a lot of diseases like myeloma, breast cancer, et cetera, patients progress and they get several lines of treatment. So post-protocol therapy is what is ha- what each arm of the clinical trial is getting after having progressed on your clinical trial I protocol, see. which is A and B respectively. I see. And that's incredibly important because if you have anything beyond a progression-free survival, if you have like FS2 or overall survival, that is impacted by what therapies each arm gets beyond progression. You read my it, mind, yeah. Yeah, even though it's not reported, it is critically important um, and helps us determine um, the value of sequencing therapies versus combining therapies. Um, and yeah, can't be emphasized enough. So let me ask you this, um, and you're, you're putting it quite nicely. Progression-free survival one or PFS one, is that in any way, shape or form affected by post-protocol therapy? Um, I don't think so. Correct. The answer is it's not. It's not. Right. So why is it not affected by post-protocol therapy? Because that, by definition, will happen after this event of interest. So this is up to that event of interest. However, PFS2, could that potentially be affected by post-protocol therapy? That's correct. So PFS2 is basically, you know, the the, it's, so you combine the the, progress, the time it took to progress with the first regimen and the subsequent regimen you received. Um, so that is very dependent on what sort of treatment the control and the intervention arm are getting after progression. Overall survival, also the same boat, affected by post-protocol there. And here's what people miss. Quality of life. 
it's also effective by post-protocol therapy because what we really care about is quality of life across the patient's journey from the point of randomization until um, on the unfortunate demise in the case of many with cancer um, or until they are cured uh, and they live out their natural life. Um, but quality of life is also the, something that keeps accumulating. Although in a paper by Allison Haslam, uh, also in JAMA Network Open, we show what percent of patient experience is captured by quality of life. And often we're just looking at this tiny snapshot in the beginning and not the duration of quality of life. But your point is well taken because post-protocol therapy doesn't matter so much for PFS1, matters immensely for PFS2 and, P- and overall survival. And I, I, you know, I almost tricked you the way I asked the question. Was, right. Okay, but yeah, yeah, of course you know the answer. But here's my question. Um, if you are developing a novel compound and you're doing a study in the last line of therapy and you show, you know, your new drug has a PFS benefit and an OS benefit, we, we'll both concede that if you're in the, you know, I guess in myeloma, maybe the seventh line of therapy, you do a randomized trial on the seventh line. I don't think anyone's ever done one, but let's say they do do one seventh line randomized therapy. There's a PFS and OS benefit from a new drug. We're going to be, you and I are going to be happy, totally happy. Um, now let's say that the company that got their drug approved in that last line of therapy. They want to move their drug to the front line. Now, I think this is where post-protocol therapy matters a great deal because the real question we're asking in multiple myeloma is, do we need to take all our active drugs and give it to the person right when they start with myeloma? If you do that, I promise you, your MRD is going to be higher. I promise you, your PFS is going to be longer. But I promise you that when they exhaust those therapies, you're going to look in your pockets, you're going to find lint because there's nothing left to give. So the real question I think that faces the doctor is of all this plethora of riches we have in myeloma, how do we decide when to do three, when to do four, when to do three, then three, then three, or three, then two, then one, you know, or, or, you know, how do we decide to use them? What's the sequence? What's the pairing? Um, You're somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about this. um, And, and that's the basis of this paper. That's correct. Exactly. Because like the the current paradigm of how trials are designed, and this is across oncology, they don't really help us in sequencing um, treatments. And you know, uh, since the 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 viewership of this audio of this show is beyond just myeloma, you know, looking at renal cancer, for example, like we have so many new TKI plus immunotherapy combinations in the front line, and. Exactly. So we don't know what to do with that. Right? No, I'm, we're, we're about to submit that paper. Prevalent across oncology. Yeah. And I think from a pharmaceutical company standpoint, and that's where the funding comes for these trials. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not financially incentivized for them to design trials that specifically look at sequencing, right? Their, their financial motivation is to like bring the treatment up front. And, um, you know, you, you choose a surrogate endpoint, like you mentioned, PFS or response rate, and you'll get that, right? It just makes sense. You add more treatments, you'll, you'll probably get a better response rate and you'll get that. And then, you know, nobody really knows what happens afterwards because it often isn't reported. And when it is reported, it's often subpar um, with what the U.S. standard of care is. So, yeah, so that's what our, our study did a deep dive on this for, for multiple myeloma. Yeah. I just want to add one thing before you talk about that, because I think you put that well. And, and, and just to build on what you're saying, um, you know, we talk a lot in oncology about the need to get drugs to patients quickly. We got to get them quickly. We got to get them new options, new drugs. I agree. You know, as an oncologist, I want new drugs for my patients, especially those who are progressing through the things that I have. And I know they're going to need something new in the future. And that's why we have accelerated approval predominantly. And that's why in myeloma, I think to my knowledge, almost all of the drugs, um, at least the good ones, 
are approved on the basis of single arm response rate in, in, in the latter line setting. That's how it happened with Dara. Uh, that's what happened with, um, with Palm. I mean, these are, these are drugs that are approved in the last line settings um, because they generate response, often good response. So that answers the question of you got the options. You've got your Dara, you got your Belantamab, Mafidotin. And, you know, I don't know if your eyes can take it, but you got it. You know, you've got your, uh, your Selenexor with your storm data. I mean, you've got your response rate data getting you those approvals. You got the options. Then the company, what do they want? They don't just want you to have that option down the road. They want everyone to get that drug right away. Why? The sample, not sample size, the number of people who are getting the first therapy is huge. The number of people who get seventh line therapy is small because unfortunately, many people with multiple myeloma pass away along the journey. They don't always make it to seven lines of therapy. So the company's incentive is now we got the approval. We got the foot in the door. We want all the market share. The doctor's incentive is now we have an option. We always have belantamab mafidotin there. I mean, we can always give it to you if you need it. But now we have all these other drugs. So we're going to give it to you when we exhaust the proven therapies. The doctor and the patient's question is, if you want to say we should add belantamab all the way to the front, I want to know that my control arm is getting belantamab on the back end because that's the standard of care right now. And so I think there's a fundamental difference, I think, in, in, the, in what the doctor and patient want and what the company wants. The company would be happy to get all that frontline market share and the control arm never gets belantamab, but that's not fair because they've already gotten that last line approval and you already are giving it in the last line that's beneath the standard of care. So the real question is belantamab upfront for everyone versus belantamab on the back end for the people you so choose to give it in. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Now, what happened when you looked into myeloma? What did what did you what did you find? Right. So, I'll just talk a little bit about the methodology before we talk about the yes, results. Good. Always and good. I also like to point out that, like, at least on my literature review, like there was no study that had ever looked at a you know a, a single disease type and a cohort of clinical trials for that disease type with the intent of seeing whether or not post you know whether or not how what the proportion of post protocol therapy reporting is. So, like, we never I'd never seen any study like that. So, this is novel in that sense that we looked at 15 years of myeloma randomized trials from 2015 through 2019. And uh, we included all randomized control trials that, you know, that were not supportive in nature. Like, for example, like if it's a supportive care intervention, then the, you know, the concept of, you know, of uh, post-protocol therapy doesn't really make sense. Or if it's a conditioning regimen, then again, the concept of post-protocol therapy doesn't really make sense. But after excluding some of the studies like that, we came up with a total of 103 randomized control trials across 15 years. And then the main outcome of our study was what proportion of these 103 studies have reported post-protocol therapies. And in order to find the answer to that question, we looked not just at the manuscript, but we also looked at all the, you know, all the appendix, the, the, the information in the appendix. We tried to look at serial publications, follow-up publications, follow-up abstracts in uh, at major international um, meetings just to see if if at any point was post protocol therapy reported or not so that was the the one outcome and then for studies that did report on post protocol therapies we tried to capture more granular information on the type of post protocol therapies was the number of post protocol or number of patients getting post-protocol therapies different in the control arm and the intervention arm? Were, were there any other differences between pharmaceutical-run studies versus cooperative-run studies in terms of reporting and in terms of the number of patients getting treatments? So we tried to do a deep dive for the limited number of studies that actually did report on post-protocol therapies. So um, these 103 um, studies 
only 45 of them, um, which is around 44% reported on post-protocol therapies. Whoa. Yeah. So we let, a, we'll, yeah, we'll take a moment for that to sink in that the majority yes, yes. of studies that we have um, do not report post-protocol therapies um, at any point. So not in a follow-up publication, you know, not in a follow-up abstract, not in the appendix. It, it just is not reported. Yeah, um, yes. I have tasted this frustration. I've tasted it in the past. And the reason it's frustrating is, you know, imagine you're somebody who's trying to make a podcast and talk about these trials. <laughs> imagine you're somebody who's trying to talk about the podcast. And imagine you want to make that point that the control arm is getting inadequate post-protocol care. Mm-hmm. And imagine that six out of 10 times you're disappointed. No, I mean, you know, I, I had never quantified it. I mean, I had felt that it occurs here and there. I look everywhere, I can't find it. And what you're doing, you're the first person ever, to my knowledge, in any tumor type, um, to quantify this fact that, you know, this is really, uh, it's as important. I want to put it this way, money. People always ask, well, who are the patients you enrolled in this study? It would be unthinkable for me not to tell you their ages. It would be unthinkable for me not to tell you their gender. It would be unthinkable for me not to tell you where I enrolled them. It would be unthinkable for me to not tell you what their baseline M protein is and what percent plasma cells they have and how many of them have lytic lesions and what their renal function was. It'd be unthinkable for me not to tell you those things. It's equally unthinkable for me not to tell you what the hell I did to them after the protocol, particularly when I'm reporting OS and long-term endpoints, and I'm trying to persuade you that this is the right sequence of a drug and not that this drug has activity, which I've already persuaded you because you already gave me that accelerated approval. And I guess the biggest example we can drive home with this is, you know, everybody uses Belkid, Revlimid, and dexamethasone upfront for, for multiple myeloma here. And there's strong evidence and, you know, it's, it's well established. And the sad part is that there was a follow-up publication, right? So after so the, the initial- so You're talking about SWOG study? SWOG 077. Yeah. Okay. There was a follow-up publication that actually demonstrated an OS advantage but nowhere in that follow-up publication or in the appendix of that publication were we actually told how many patients got in the control arm got Belkid upon progression. Yeah. I would hope that it's a high, it's a high amount because this is, you know, the study was run in the US. But and it, it, really and, and it was run long after Velcad was approved. Exactly. Yeah. Long after. And and I and I don't deny, and like I want to be on the record, and that there is value to triplets over doublets. Yes. And I'll give you I'll give you a counter example. Like there was a study that did report on long-term outcomes, and this is a study from Europe, MMY3006. And we have about like 12 years of follow-up data for this study. So they transparently reported outcomes. One arm got Velcade, thalidomide, and dexamethasone, followed by a tandem transplant. The other arm got thalidomide and dexamethasone, to, and then followed by a tandem transplant followed up for 12 years, post-protocol therapies transparently reported, and there was a clear noticeable survival advantage for triplet over doublet. So I don't deny that, but like it's pretty basic information, right? If you're publishing a follow-up, a follow-up paper on overall survival, you probably should have post-protocol therapies in it. And so that- remind me again, what was the trial that did a satisfactory job of this? So there, there are a few noticeable examples. So the one that I mentioned right now is, is from Europe. It's uh, G-I-M-E-M-A-M-M-Y-3006. Okay. Um, but then another more important, a more example that more people, most people know about is the IFM 2009. Sure. Which compared upfront, versus, which compared upfront versus delayed um, autologous transplantation. And then, you know, with long follow-up, we know exactly how many people got um, autologous transplantation at, at progression. And, you know, we can make conclusions and people can come to different conclusions, but at least people have the information that's that's necessary to come to that, right? 
where some people will look at the data and be like, okay, we can, you know, we shouldn't defer a transplant because you get a better PFS upfront. Whereas another person will look at it and be like, you may get a better PFS, but doing a transplant later gives you this, you know, the same OS. Um, so and, the and fact yeah, can, that- I, can I just articulate something there? Because I think you're making a very important point that's often I think people misunderstand a little bit, which is some people say the reason you use more drugs, more transplant, more therapies, aggressive therapies upfront is because, quote, some people don't make it to second line, end quote. And what I think that means is you want to maximize survival in the population. And it is true. Some people don't make it to second line. The way you test that empirically is to say, we're going to randomize you upfront to this very aggressive thing, knowing that some people don't make it to second line. And in the control arm, we're going to randomize you to the same or to, to not doing that aggressive thing. And anyone who does make it to second line, we're going to do the absolute best job we can do for those people. And there's still an OS benefit. So to me, when you say there was no OS benefit, um, um, but we know that many people don't make it to second line, the fact that many people don't make it to second line is an argument that you should have found the OS benefit, you know, if, if your therapies were really so good. Um, right. uh, you know, so th that kind of cuts to the, the, the transplant question, but, but you're making a really good point because the question isn't in the IFM study, do you want to at some point use a transplant? I think the answer to that question is we've conceded, at least for the time being, the answer is yes. The question is, do we need to do that in everyone in CR1, which is way more people, way more people in that study? How many more people? I mean, it was 20 some percent versus everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, three or four times as many more people have to get it. Right. And, and, and because you're doing that and it's, it's not, you know, nobody wants it just for fun. I mean, you want it to live longer, live better. Um, and, and do they live longer, live better? And you can ask those questions because you know, the post-protocol frequency. Go exactly. on, yeah. So, and then we try to stratify whether or not a study reported post-protocol therapy based on whether it was run by a pharmaceutical company or by a cooperative group. Um, so I actually was surprised by this, but you had predicted rightly that pharmaceutical companies were actually more likely to report um, post-protocol therapies in, in their studies than cooperative groups. And I think it, at least in my naive, like um, amateur mind, I thought it's probably related to funding. I guess like, you know, there's limited funding and resources that cooperative groups have compared to pharmaceutical companies. But what thoughts did you have as Wondering if you could elaborate more on this. No, that was, that was I, I, I guess I have two, I have two principles in my core, which is one, um, um, <clears throat> pharmaceutical companies have more resources and more money to do trials. Uh, uh, that's one. Two, when there are benchmarks, when there are things, uh, check boxes that you can check, pharmaceutical companies check those check boxes. You know, if you look at a, a large surveys of clinical trials and you look at uh, publishing, how many people publish negative studies, actually pharma is better than academics. If you look at large clinical trials and how many people hit the Jadad score, other sort of scoring metrics for randomization and things like that, pharma, you know, they have a checklist, they follow the checklist. Because when you have a lot of money and resources, you can check boxes on a checklist. But pharma trials often have deep flaws, as you and I both know, choice of competitor, the way in which they're kind of running it, the lack of crossover, going to certain places. So I have no doubt that they know the answer to the question in 100% of their studies. You know, I might have some doubt, actually. I doubt that, uh, a little bit that the ECOG investigators may, they may not even know what happened in SWOG 077. They may not even know. I mean, I don't, even, I don't know the answer. If they know it or not, then I'm choosing not to report it. But I know the companies know. The companies exactly. know. They have every incentive to know. If I worked at the company and they ran a trial, I'll ask him, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'll say, like, look, I'm not saying we're going to put this in the manuscript, but just I'm curious what happened after the care. And if they told me, no, I don't know. I'd say, you don't know? 
What are we paying all this money for? Get out there and get that answer. Come on, get out that answer. Get that answer. And then, by the way, I want to buy you tomorrow. You got till tomorrow to give me that answer. Yeah, so of course, I mean, you have resources. You can get the info. So I had so so I think this it was why I made that guess to you on a phone call, I think, um, right. that I thought they'd do a better job. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean they run a better trial. I want to be careful about that. But you, but the, yeah, but, but you found what you found. You found what you found. They're reporting this better. Very true. Points where points are due. Exactly. And then, you know, you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation today about, um, about attrition, right? How some, some studies have shown that your patients with myeloma may not make it to a second line of treatment. There was um, a study published by uh, Rafael Fonseca in which, you know, they looked at large claim data sets of, of thousands of patients, and they came to this number of about 50% of patients, roughly, um, with transplant ineligible myeloma, uh, only 50% of them make it to a second line of treatment. So we wanted to look at that for patients on clinical trials and how many patients in the front, in, in for frontline trials and for relapse refractory trials, how many patients actually make it to a, a second line of treatment when reported. And we would have expected that the numbers would be high, right? Because these are <clears throat> clinical trial patients, they're fit, you know, you would expect them to follow up. Um, they run in institutions where generally you would expect, you know, that you'd have access to treatments at progression. So we were very surprised that amongst, so first of all, you know, a lot of studies haven't even reported it, but amongst the studies that did report, only about half of patients in clinical trials actually went on to receive a subsequent line of therapy. And the number was close to 50% for, for both the newly diagnosed and relapsed refractory uh, settings, which is, it's pretty, I mean, it was about 54% for newly diagnosed and about 49% for relapse refractory. But that's, that's disappointing, right? That you would have expected more patients to, um, to get subsequent therapies. Um, so those results were very sobering. Yeah. Um, Let me, uh, yeah, just to push on that a little bit more. Um, you know, in contrast with real world patients, these are trial patients. They're fit as a fiddle. They're really fit and maybe even younger and, and, and they have really good substrate. Um, and, 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 and there are reasons of course, not to give a second line therapy. The biggest reason of course, is the patient has passed away. It's the biggest reason not to give a second line therapy. The next reason is they're super, super sick and death is inevitable and very soon. And you're not going to even try a second line therapy. That's also acceptable, but that is not 50% of people. That's exactly. just not, um, in this population, you would expect a much higher percentage of people to get some second line therapy. What it tells me is you have run your trial in some place on this planet where there are no second line options for this patients. And so some fit people are getting no further therapy. Mm -hmm. And that to me is such a confounding variable that I have zero trust in your PFS2 and zero trust in your OS. I, I, I don't know what it means for America um, where that simply probably would not happen. Yeah. And it's very sad because like, you know, it's uh, these trials are run in countries and they're you know, advertised as, oh, we're providing you know, good care to, to patients who don't have any other options. But if that truly was the case, you would still, you know, have some mechanism to give the, these new treatments to patients after progression. You wouldn't just abandon them after the clinical trial ended, which I is mean, sad to see what, what happens. Why can't they give them cyclophosphamide and I mean, why can't they give them some of these really cheap drugs that have activity in myeloma? I don't understand that either. Exactly. Um, you know, the Boston study, for example, we, we, we looked at this where, you know, there were lots of patients enrolled across the world. Like, I'd like to know how many patients in India, for example, get access to Selinexer, for example, after they've progressed on, um, on the, you know, on the, on the, on the control arm of this study. Hmm. Um, and, 
even in the Boston trial, like about half of patients got nothing. Uh, half of patients in the control arm got nothing after progressing. Mm. Um, so the Boston you know, trial, uh, so named because it has nothing to do with anyone's care in Boston. You know, as right. as nothing to do with Bo- the city of Boston. You know, never want to look at this study. Exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah. And then, so we try to do a deep drive for some of the pivotal practice changing trials across both the frontline and the real actually practice setting. Um, and because these trials inform practice, so it's important to, to know what post-protocol therapies are, right, in those trials. So we already spoke about SWOG 077, which dictates frontline treatment today for patients in the United States. You know, another one, which uh, is the MAYA trial, uh-huh. which for transplant ineligible patients compares deratumumab, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone versus lenalidomide and dexamethasone, Right. So you would expect that patients in the control arm of lenalidomide and dexamethasone um, get deratumumab upon progression. That is the standard of care now, where you know all guidelines recommend you know strongly recommend a deratumumab-based regimen at at first relapse. So you know it took a lot of effort to find this. So basically, how I found this, it was hidden in a poster presentation that was presented at ASH 2020. So if you look through the slides, there was this one slide and that slide was only visible for like five seconds, basically, where, and then was quickly forwarded over where that slide said that, you know, it, it named the three most commonly used regimens at progression for the control arm. And none of those regimens had deratumumab in it. So basically, even in the Maya study, you're giving Len and Dex as the control arm. And then the control arm is likely not getting deratumumab at, at progression. So yes, you probably are going to get an overall survival advantage, right? But it doesn't help tell us in the US at least whether you know, giving deratumumab upfront is, is better than delaying it at progression. Another study, and this already has an overall survival advantage is the Alcyone study. Mm-hmm. And this was run in Europe where you know, VNP, so Velcade, Melphalan, and Prednisone was, was the standard of care at that time. So they compared the control arm, which was Velcade, Melphalan, and Prednisone, and then the intervention arm, which was Velcade, Melphalan, Prednisone, and Deratumumab. And Dera, of course. Right. Mm-hmm. And this trial Norton, uh, already has an overall survival advantage for the intervention arm. But what about the control arm? Yeah. So in the control arm, only 10% of patients got Deratumumab at progression. So, and again, it's how this information is often like hidden away. So it's very tough to find it because... Um, and it undermines it undermines the the overall survival advantage we're seeing because you probably would not see it in conditions like the U.S. where people have access to deratumumab at progression. So yeah, th- that definitely was uh, took us um, took us by surprise um, seeing how low the numbers are. You know, I think um, it's sobering. It's really sobering because if one were to stand on a mountaintop. Um, one and look at the entire clinical trials landscape of oncology. I think um, there are so many trials and how many actually are really informative to patient-centered decision-making is scant. What do we have? We have a sea of uncontrolled studies, right. sea of uncontrolled studies compared against historical controls. And you know, I have no idea, you know, is this, is this response rate really better? And there's a nice paper by, by somebody who works with me, Alison Haslam, in the International Journal of Cancer, where, where she looked at drugs approved based on uncontrolled studies 
can she look in the literature and find a drug with a similar response rate? And the answer is like almost always she can find one with comparable response rates. So you could have run a randomized trial and answered a question. Then you got the randomized trials. Thank God we've got some randomization. If we didn't have any randomization, oh, they'd have to call us surgeons. No, <laughs> no just kidding, surgical oncologists. I love you. I love you people. But uh, yeah, we, we, we like to randomize some things. Um, so we have the randomized trials. Right. And the randomized trials, you know, I, I, I will direct re le readers to a paper by um, Talal Hilal on JAM Internal Medicine, uh, Limitations in Clinical Trials Leading to Anti-Cancer Drug Approvals, you know, where he looks at the randomized trials and he finds that there are issues with, you know, a certain fraction have a bad control arm, a certain fraction um, either used crossover when you didn't want to use it, like a sipilucil T kind of situation, uh, or didn't use crossover when you wanted to use it, uh, similar to, I think, your Maya study. Um, uh, 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 so we have that problem. And then we have the problem that you're talking about, which is, I think, a broad a circle than the Venn diagram of this the precise issue of crossover, which is post-protocol therapy has to be up to snuff. It has to be up to the US standard. And, and, and I think your paper is the first paper I'm aware of where you one show that reporting on this thing that's super important for downstream endpoints is terrible. You're not even telling me what happened. I don't even know if you know it. I hope you know it, but maybe you don't even know it. Um, and then when you do tell me, I don't like what I hear, it's super inadequate. It's, it's a tragedy. It makes your heart ache for the poor people who are not getting any further therapy. And then the, the meta point is now the trial is not really even capable of answering the question. So DARA VMP versus VMP then DARA, that's the question. I don't know. You'll never know. So the trial, what, what does it answer? And to be honest with you, if you can afford DARA VMP, you probably could have shelled out for that Revlimid. You could have a VRD instead. You could have had the VRD. You saved all that money up, uh, you know, and then you bought the DARA. And I don't know if that's better than the VRD you could have been having. So I don't know. This trial doesn't help Europe either. I don't think it informs Europe, nor does it inform the US. It informs nobody. It doesn't ask the proper post-protocol. It doesn't have post-protocol care in line with what they were doing. Yeah, so I guess from the mountaintop, I guess I sit on the mountaintop, I look. I'm like, what are we doing? We're using all these human beings, cancer patients in so many studies that don't advance our knowledge in any way. They advance this commercial interest or that commercial interest or a commercial interest in Boston. There's a lot of commercial interest in Boston. Uh, you know, they advance some commercial interest, but they don't advance the care of these patients. And that is, I think, the broader tragedy that you're pointing to. Right. Yeah, that's very eloquently put. And you know, speaking to you know what is a appropriate crossover and what is an appropriate crossover, so we were able to do a deep dive in it. Like so, and I, and I wanted to like go over that a little bit. So we looked at the relapsed refractory trials as well, obviously. And um, so let's let's say so you know carfilzomib, for example. So carfilzomib was compared to um, bortezomib. So carfilzomib versus bortezomib in the uh, in the Endeavor study, and with long term follow up that trial did actually show an overall survival benefit for carfilzomib, which we know, I mean, carfilzomib is a highly effective drug. It's a game changer um, for multiple myeloma. This is Endeavor. And, yep. So okay. in that- in, in, And I have in, a criticism. Okay, go on. Yeah. Yeah. In that study, um, there was very low use of carfilzomib in the control arm, which sort of makes the, the argument that it actually does prolong overall survival sort of stronger, right? Because, you know, the control arm didn't really get carfilzomib. Um, if, if it had, if the control arm had gotten carfilzomib, you might not have seen an overall survival advantage as readily as you did. The counter argument, you know, just, just to highlight this in further is, so we've already seen a daratumumab survival advantage in the newly diagnosed setting with alcyone, all right? Right. But with the daratumumab in the relapsed refractory setting, 
the two pivot the the one the two earlier trials, which is Pollux and Castor. Castor so and Pollux, the twins. Yes. Right, right. It's completely messed up stargazing for me because every time I look at the sky, I think of Myeloma now, and I'm, I, I enjoy stargazing. <laughs> but anyways, going back, so you know, Castor, which is Derek Imimab, uh, Bortezomib index versus yes. Bortezomib index for the real after refractory, yes. and Pollux, which is Derek Imimab Len index versus um, Len index for yes. the real after refractory setting. So we still don't have an overall survival advantage for them. And it's because the majority of patients upon progression have gotten DARA. They have gotten DARA too. But, but, but that's, I guess, that's, go on. No, yeah, go on. I, you want to say something? Yeah. That tells you something. I mean, I think it tells you that DARA is good, but does everyone need to get it second line? And I think Maya doesn't answer the question, DARA is good, does everyone need to get a first line? It answers the question, DARA is good, should you get it at all versus never getting it at all? That's not yeah. a question that it's relevant because the places that aren't giving DARA at any point, they can't afford DARA. And the places that are giving it at some point, they right. can't, they're the ones that want to know if they should give it sooner. So you're not helping out these places that can't afford it and you're not helping out the places that can't afford it. Okay, point about Endeavor. Endeavor, in Endeavor, you could enroll in Endeavor with prior proteasome inhibition. Isn't that right? And wasn't it almost all exclusively 40% was like um, bortezomib use? Correct. But, I mean, it, was, so, it was at a time where we didn't have a lot of other like PIs. Sure, so, sure. But, yeah. yeah, but I guess my point there is that, um, you know, as a general rule in oncology, um, you know, uh, a, 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 you know, a me too drug, if you've, if you've exhausted the parent is slightly better than giving more of the parent. Okay, fine. You know, I, I'm happy to say that that's probably the case. Like in our clinical practice, if we've given Revlimid, we think about Palm. If we've given Palm, we think about Revlimid. If we've given Carfilzomib, we think about Velcade because you want to try to alter it a little bit to try to, you know, uh, potentially take advantage of cells that may not be fully resistant to the, the compound you're giving. So I think it's kind of scientifically not that interesting, but sure. Um, the more interesting study to me, of course, is the cooperative group study in the frontline study. In the frontline study, remember they talked a big game. Carfilzomib so good, so good, so good. It's going to win PFS, right? What happened to them? Got flattened. Yeah, the nothing. Yeah, the endurance trial. I mean, like, you know, people are so entrenched in their biases and their opinions that some people still don't buy that data. I know. And so... Yeah, there's some people who'll never be convinced and, you know, no they, amount of randomized data can convince them. A, a smart person can always tell you why a randomized study should have turned out the other way. Uh-huh. And, but, a, but, a wise person, but a wise person designs it right and then accepts the outcome no matter what it happens. Yeah, okay. Correct. Um, so, so, good. This is an interesting paper. Um, you know, out now, JAMA Network Open, the title of the paper, I've got it here because... Because full disclosure, I, I, I'm an author of the paper too. Uh, uh, why don't you Why don't you take us through the authors? Yeah, give a shout out to the to the the, sure. the, the great team you put together. Yeah. So, like immense kudos to Kelly Kane. She is a second year uh, fellow, and she has done a lot of myeloma research with me. I she's see. actually going into breast cancer. I wish she really? wasn't. Really? Wow. Yeah. She's done some tremendous work and um, has helped us. Helped All me. you think about when you think about breast cancer is a second malignancy. No, just kidding. It's not one of the ones that just most commonly <laughs> looking at the secondary. Yeah. Malignancy. And then obviously we have our, our favorite, uh, Al-Ola Abdullah. I love Al-Ola. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very outspoken, not afraid to say his mind. And it's, yeah, he's, he's been a great mentor for me because he's at my institution and he's definitely, you know, taught me that it's okay to think outside the box and, and voice your uh, my opinions. Good. And then last, but definitely not the least, we have Aaron Goodman. Papahim, uh, Papahim. Papa yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have a dream team and, you know, we're, we're making myeloma great again and asking <laughs> questions that haven't been asked before and you know, thinking about things differently. 
Yes. You know, I was talking uh, the other day with uh, Danny Myers and uh, Danny, uh, after I wish we had recorded it, but after we recorded, he was asking me about, you know, um, you know, for, for those of us who want to make myeloma great again or make cancer great again, you know, whatever the, the, the tumor type it is, how do you, what, you know, what is, what are your best tactics to do so? And I will say that, you know, you can, you can write papers, you can, you know, try to politic, you can try to get guidelines, you can try to do this, that, and the other, there's so many things you can try to do. However, there is nothing that I believe is more effective than trying to influence the next generation of people. And so I guess of all the people who read your paper, the people who I hope read it the most are the fellows, the residents, the junior faculty, um, because their minds have not yet cemented, you know, they're still open-minded. Once you get to be my age, not not about your you're the you're 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 cementing hard as we speak. But once you get to my age, you know you're an old dog. You can't learn new tricks. You're set in your ways. And if your ways are that this is acceptable, so it is. And in my way, it's I find it unacceptable. And I doubt that anyone will persuade me that it ever was acceptable. But you know, it becomes set in your ways. So I think we have to we have to reach out. So I, I look forward to seeing what Kelly does in breast cancer. You know, they're plagued by a lot of the same questions. You I know? agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they used to be really good. Like. You know, some yeah. of the old breast cancer trials, the way they handled post-protocol therapies was amazing. It's inspirational. Yeah. The, pa- the paper by, I'm thinking about the JCO paper by Sledge. And by the way, I'm going to interview George Sledge to talk about that. I think it has changed. Um, you know, a, a, a great example is the role of palbociclib. Does everybody need CD4-6 inhibition with the, the initiation of endocrine therapy? Or can you do endocrine therapy and then add it in in second line with a different AI or a different, uh, and, you know, they haven't, they've never, none of their trials really answer that question. Um, you know, but they weren't, they once were great. They did the great study, anthracycline plus taxane versus taxane, then anthracycline or anthracycline, then taxane. They did exactly. it clean, beautiful study. You'll never well, do a study like that today. It was so inspirational the way they reported it, you know, like I, I tweeted about it a few months ago. Like, you know, they acknowledged that, you know, there was better PFS, but there wasn't OS and hence the standard of care shouldn't change. Uh, yes. You know, they actually write in their discussion that as we, they say like, as we all know, if you put two drugs together, it is a, it is a, 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 it is, it is to be expected that responses are deeper and PFS is better. However, you would only do this if quality of life is better or survival is longer. Both of those things were not shown in this study. Ergo, we do not recommend it. Now, fast forward 2020, here's how they write that same thing. They write it, um, we combined two drugs that previously were used in sequence. Our control arm, we never gave the second drug because you know what? We don't have to. And by the way, we're not going to tell you what we did. We found the PFS was longer and the response rate was deeper. As you well know, a PFS and response rate is the only thing that matters. Overall survival, to hell with it. We'll never measure it. It's not mature anyway. And if it were mature, it would probably be erroneous. Uh, and by the way, quality of life is neither here nor there. We didn't really collect the questionnaires all too often. So that's the modern interpretation. Yeah, it's 100%. It's switched. So- yeah, maybe she'll make breast cancer great again. I hope so. <laughs> well, Mani Moyudin, I'll give you the last word. Any final thoughts on this paper? Um, well, no, we were just, I, there's a lot of other exciting stuff coming up. So stay, stay tuned. Vinay and I are collaborating on a lot of other things, myeloma and heme malignancy related. So we'll, we'll keep you all updated. I think uh, listeners will love to have you back. Uh, they enjoyed your first, uh, your first visit. And um, oh, and we're going to do the round table. Uh, you're going to join us at the round table, uh, the round table where we're all going to duke it out on maintenance, maintenance, PI, Revlimid, who gets maintenance, when, where, what, why, and what evidence you need, uh, high-risk myeloma, low-risk myeloma. Should we be Bayesians or should we stick to some principles? That's what I want to talk about. So I look forward to that discussion, Mani. Sounds good. Thank you for having me here. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klausner. 
Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.